Welcome to Screencast, Screen's podcast series where our lawyers and other industry or thought leaders share their views and insights on various legal issues and developments in Malaysia. Welcome to today's episode of Screencast. Uh, I'm Nimalan Devaraja, a partner at the Screen Dispute Resolution Division, and joining me on today's podcast is... Hi everyone, I'm Kalei Arasan Rasadurai, a dispute resolution lawyer at Screen as well. Now, as disputes lawyers, when faced with a contractual claim uh, from a client, one of the first clauses that we look at is the dispute resolution clause. And this is for a very simple reason. We want to know if you decide to file a claim, do we file it in the courtroom or in arbitration. And that is the topic of today's podcast, choosing your battlefield, courtroom or arbitration. Now, Kalai, you're a construction lawyer, and I think the majority of arbitrations in Malaysia, at least at the AIAC, is construction arbitration. Uh, So I really think you're the best person to tell me, what is the benefit of going to arbitration instead of the courtroom? What makes arbitration stand out, in my personal view, is firstly, party autonomy. Party autonomy, I mean, it's, it's a concept where parties, that means the parties who are in dispute, they choose everything from the applicable laws, seat, applicable rules, the venue where the dispute resolution process should take place, and most importantly, they have the right to choose an arbitrator. And the reason why arbitration is special is because when you choose an arbitrator, parties who are in specific fields, for example, construction or oil and gas fields, when they have a dispute which is related to construction or oil and gas, they will choose an expert in that field who has sufficient experience in that relevant field to sit as an arbitrator to decide a dispute. I think this is the most crucial part which makes arbitration stand out. Apart from that, of course, it's the issue of confidentiality. That arbitration is confidential and nothing shall be disclosed out of the proceedings. Now, Kala, if I could just pick your brain on what you said earlier, I think the first point you made about party autonomy and really the question I have is about the choice of arbitrator. I think let's be practical here, okay? Where it's a single arbitrator sitting in arbitration, which I would assume is how it is in most arbitrations, the claimant is going to nominate person A as his arbitrator. Undoubtedly, the respondent is going to object to person A and then suggest person B instead, who is going to be objected to by the claimant. And then it's going to be left to the director of the AIAC to decide who the arbitrator should be. So is there really party autonomy in, or even a certainty that you'll get an expert in the field if you're leaving it to the director to choose the arbitrator instead of parties choosing the person they think best for their dispute? And I guess the second thing I have to say about that is, do we really need an arbitrator who is a specialist in the subject matter anymore, when our judiciary has now set up courts, at least in Kuala Lumpur and the Shah Alam High Courts, specialist courts like the construction courts uh, and the family law courts, wouldn't this resolve the issue that parties may face in not having a specialist hear their dispute? What I personally feel is, yes, of course, the specialist courts now, there's a construction court in KL and Shah Alam. What parties have in their hands is the choice to go to arbitration or court and one consideration can be that as the specialist courts of course but the question then is the specialist courts are only for construction related disputes what about other areas such as oil and gas or some very niche areas for example you have a dispute on underground cabling which is 
pretty uncommon. There are a variety of other areas in construction as well where uh, you need a lot of technical knowledge. It involves technical issues uh, deep down to the root to understand uh, in order to make the determination. So for these disputes, like I said, these are very niche areas. So you might then choose to get, for example, if it's a QS issue, then you get a QS as an arbitrator. So engineering issue, you might want to get an engineer as an arbitrator. So this will change the whole concept of, you know, what are the issues being ventilated, whether it's just legal issues or it's uh, the niche areas in these relevant fields. And then as you asked about party autonomy, whether it's even real, right? Because if parties don't agree, then you have to go to the director of AIC. Of course, parties have a timeline based on the rules to agree on the arbitrator. Once that the time is up, what parties can do is write to the director of the relevant institution that they have chosen to administer and request for an appointment. And what the director then would, or I think should do, is that he has a pool of arbitrators before him. And I would assume that the process of appointing an arbitrator would involve selecting the arbitrator based on their respective fields of expertise. And that would say, so for example, if the dispute is an oil and gas dispute, then they would definitely choose someone who, or should choose someone who is in the oil and gas field. I hope that answers your question. All right, Kala, so if I could just sum up what you're saying, just to make sure I'm on the on the right battlefield. What you're trying to say is that regardless of whether it's party autonomy on the choice of arbitrator or whether it's left to the director to decide, essentially arbitration still gives parties the opportunity to have a more specialised or experienced arbitrator in the subject of dispute compared to courts. Yes, that's right. All right, and then if I can get back to the second point you mentioned at the start of our conversation on confidentiality. Now, let's be serious. Is it really still confidentiality? I mean, sure, the arbitration process is confidential, but we all know what happens after the arbitration ends. One party is going to file a setting aside application. The other party is going to file an application to enforce the arbitral award, which will be heavily opposed. Parties are going to throw in the kitchen sink, adduce everything in court, the award, the notes of proceedings, the documents, in trying to poke hole in the arbitral decision. And, as we know, court is a public forum. Uh, court documents are available on the EFS site. So is there really confidentiality in the arbitration proceedings? That's a good question, Evelyn. Earlier, there was issue of, you know, when you go to court to enforce the award, to set aside an arbitral award, then what happens is when you file all your cost papers or arbitral documents into court, then court, as you know, is an open process and everything gets disclosed to the public. Uh, but courts in Malaysia, I believe, are now moving towards a direction where arbitration-related matters are heard in chambers which means it's not an open court setting, which is open to public. Uh, likewise, I believe uh, the documents then should also be restricted just to the parties. So I think this is a welcome move from the nation courts, and I guess that would address your concern on confidentiality. Yes, it's great to learn about the development in Malaysian jurisprudence. All right, Nimal, I think you've asked a lot to me, but uh, let me get to you now. Uh, why do you think courts are still the go-to dispute resolution process for most commercial matters, especially non-construction disputes? Well, Kala, I think it's, um, you see this from two facets, okay? Uh, so first, let's look at a domestic dispute where both parties are Malaysian-based and they're deciding whether to go to arbitration or court for your general contractual disputes, nothing specialised like the construction disputes you are experienced in. And the question then comes, why do I go to arbitration when I can go to court? For two reasons that court remains a preferred choice. One, costs. I think you know how expensive arbitration can be. 
if you just take the AIAC schedule of fees, for example, a simple one million ringgit claim with one arbitrator seating can already run you up to about, I think, 65,000 ringgit in terms of arbitrator fees and administration fees. And that amount is just going to keep going higher and higher the larger your dispute claims. Let's compare that to the court. It's practically free to go to court. You just got some minimal filing fees and you're all set and ready to go. So I think cost is one reason why parties still prefer to go to court for commercial matters in general. Um, the second is time. I think, I mean, again, let's be real. The myth of arbitration being a faster mode of dispute resolution is long gone. The court is faster these days in general. As we all know, courts have a very strict KPI. They have meant to complete cases within nine months to a year unless of extenuating circumstances. And as the judges themselves take a very active role in managing the case and pressuring parties to complete promptly. If you take arbitration, for example, I think you mentioned party autonomy. When you have two very busy counsels on both sides and a very busy arbitrator all trying to fit things into their schedule, dates are going to be pushed back as other things take priority. There's really two reasons why I think, uh, at least in a domestic context, uh, courts are still the preferred battlefield for parties. But, and I come to my second facet here, where it's an international dispute. You know, one party may be a domestic party, the other is an international party, maybe an investor in Malaysia or something. I think in those circumstances, you see arbitration tending to be favoured as the choice of dispute resolution. And that's for two reasons. One, if you're an international party, you may not want to see your dispute go into the Malaysian courtrooms, which may be considered to give an advantage to a domestic party. You know, they, they know what the judge is like, they know what the culture is like, they know what the, the tricks of litigation are like. As an international party, you would probably have a preference to go for a arbitral institution like the AIAC, or even more likely a neutral-based one. I think in Malaysia, you see a lot of situations where Malaysian party contracts with the international party uh, tend to have arbitration clauses with the SAIEC, the Singapore International Arbitration Centre, as the choice of administrating body. So that's one. And then secondly is, again, when you have an international party, they may want the choice of law for the arbitration clause to be non-Malaysian choice of law. Uh, they may prefer the law governing the contract to be their home law or, again, a neutral law. In that situation, if you're going to go to the Malaysian courts, you're going to have to go through the added hassle of uh, finding an expert in the foreign law to come to Malaysia and testify as to what the applicable law is or what they say it is. But if you go to arbitration, especially international arbitration, the benefit is you get a neutral nationality arbitrator who may specialize or practice in that uh, legal jurisprudence that governs a contract, who may be able to understand the legal nuances better than someone who has never practiced it before. So I think that's really uh, where we see arbitration going for non-construction contracts. When it's a domestic dispute, I think the courts are still favoured because it's uh, cheaper and faster. Where it's an international style dispute, you can see, I think, or we will start seeing more and more arbitrations being commenced just because of the ability to keep uh, things, at least on the face of it, neutral by bringing in neutral arbitral institutions or neutral arbitrators. Wow, that's a lot of explanation to that. One question, Nimlin. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'd just like to address two points that uh, you brought up. I agree cost in arbitration is a lot more higher. And the issue of time. Both these issues are something that differs from instances to another instance, right? Firstly, cost. Like I said, party autonomy in arbitration plays a huge role here. 
if you want a cost-effective arbitration, arbitration is a creature of contract, right? So you can agree to any rules, any procedure that you want. If your concern is cost and time, then you should pick a procedure that is suited to your concerns. Let's say cost is your issue. You can choose a mode that is cheaper, maybe a procedure that is not so elaborate, doesn't involve uh, witness examinations, documents only process. So for this, there's existing rules and procedure to set out uh, fast-track procedures or expedited arbitrations and so on. This might save you some cost in arbitration. And of course, time. When you go for fast-track or expedited processes, you'll save significant amount of time. And these expedited processes are, I believe, faster than the court processes that you've mentioned because, as you said, court has nine months KPI and so on. For expedited processes, I think it's about five months or so that you would be able to get a determination. But this has its pros and cons in the sense that an expedited process or fast-track process will only be a documents-only process instead of one which has a witness examination. So end of the day boils down to what you want, right? Uh, sure, Kalai, but if I could just stop you there. I mean, from what you're saying... There seems to be an inbuilt mechanism uh, in the arbitration process to allow for quicker and cheaper arbitrations. Uh, but it seems to come with drawbacks. You know, I can't examine witnesses. I can only do document arbitrations, which may prejudice my claim. It's, it's like a balancing act. You're, you're forcing a party to choose. Do I want to go faster and save costs, but then prejudice my case and the ability to canvas all the merits? Or do I want to go full force uh, to pursue my claim? but then incur higher costs and may have to wait a bit longer. The courtroom answers both that. The courtroom gives it to you cheap, faster. I won't say fast because we all know how the court backlog is post the COVID pandemic, but faster. And at the same time, you can have your whole full-blown trial with cross-examination and heated arguments going on. I mean, even in costs, I think I think we have to be real. You know, no arbitrator is going to take on an appointment for very cheap fees. At the minimum, an arbitrator is going to say, you pay me this in accordance with the schedule of fees uh, under the prescribed rules, which I think as we discussed earlier, even under the AIAC rules, it's already about 65,000 to 70,000 ringgit for a session court claim in essence, under 1 million ringgit. Uh, that's right. I, I guess I got to agree with you in terms of cost there. But you see, 65,000 is almost nothing compared to the value of disputes that actually should go to arbitration. Uh, we are talking about tens of millions of dollar disputes or hundreds of millions of dollar disputes. These are disputes that involve tons of documents and may go into a lot of details. And each areas, like I said, you know, for example, underground tunneling or engineering disputes like slope gradient failures of slopes and so on. For this, you need a lot of expert. You need a lot of documents to be reviewed. Um, having said that, you know, having gone through the the reasons why a domestic contract may prefer the battlefield of a courtroom, while an international dispute may prefer the battlefield of an arbitration. I wanted to ask you, Kalai, what is it like proving a claim in arbitration? As we know, in the courtroom, uh, there's very strict procedures to follow under the rules of court, Cost Adjudicator Act, and more importantly, the Evidence Act, which has like, I think, close to a couple of hundreds provisions, which you must follow strictly to prove your claim, including the best evidence rules. How does it work in arbitration? Well, in arbitration, uh, of course, a sigh of relief is that Evidence Act is not applicable. Oh, that's very interesting to know. That's right. So, what is then applicable? Parties have an array of uh, different rules that they can adopt or make it binding on their arbitration that they can choose on, right? So, this can include the IBA rules on taking evidence. So, this is, uh, although it's not binding, unless it's agreed by parties to be binding, this gives you 
uh, enough guidance or procedure for you to ventilate your dispute and uh, to prove your case. So that's the, on my understanding, that's the primary uh, rules that we follow for taking of evidence in arbitration. So if I can ask you, Kalai, uh, based on your experience dealing with the Evidence Act and the IBA rules on taking evidence, which is easier to follow? Which places less of a burden on a party in trying to prove his claim? Hands down, of course, IBA rules. Why would you say that? Because it's so much easier to prove your case. So just moving on, Kalai, I think, uh, and I'm sure this is something that is on everyone's mind when they decide on a dispute resolution clause. What happens next? No party is really happy with just getting a judgment or an arbitral award. I think that just makes the lawyers happy. What parties want to know is how do they recover the judgment sum pursuant to the judgment or the arbitral award? I guess that's my question to you. In a domestic situation where the judgment debtor is a domestic party, what's easier to enforce, a court judgment or arbitral award? Of course, Nimilin, uh, I think a court judgment would be a lot easier because once you have a court judgment, you can enforce it directly, right? But there's just one more extra step for an arbitral award where you have to go in, register and enforce the award pursuant to the Arbitration Act 2005. Would I be right in saying that uh, when you try and enforce an arbitral award, uh, the other party can oppose it or even apply to set it aside? Yes, of course. There are a few crucial grounds in which that they can uh, try and resist your enforcement All right. or set it aside. And I guess that really means, um, if you're honest with each other here, uh, the so-called binding nature of an arbitral award, it isn't really binding. Once you finish arbitration, you're going to go into the courtroom battlefield and fight it out again on a setting aside an enforcement application. I would have to take a different view here. Uh, well, in court, once you get a judgment on first instance after after your trial court gives a judgment, you have the right to appeal once automatically and the second round with leave, right? Yes. In arbitration awards or arbitral awards, you don't have an appeal. It's only a process where the successful party will apply to enforce it. The other party can resist the enforcement or apply to set aside on limited grounds. Uh, these limited grounds are, for example, breach of natural justice, fraud, excess of jurisdiction and all these grounds are very serious in nature and they don't go to the merits of the decision or the dispute in the arbitral award they just look at this in the context of these limited grounds and Sorry. they can only be set aside for these limited grounds so Kalev, I just stop you there I agree with you it's it's harder to set aside an arbitral award than to appeal against a court judgment but in terms of the timeline the process till you actually can recover your fruits of the labour it is a continuous battle. No one really ends an arbitration and then walks away. You are going to see court proceedings again, either to enforce or set aside an arbitral award, and it's going to go up. Well, they're going to try and bring it up at least to the federal court. Uh, unfortunately, that, that might be true in some instances, yes. So yes, it's interesting. I guess in a domestic situation then, it looks like having a court judgment may be better than having an arbitral award. Interestingly enough, I think it's very different when it comes to an international dispute where the judgment debtor is an international party. From my understanding at least, I mean, if you look at the Malaysian context uh, where you get a foreign court judgment uh, which you want to enforce in Malaysia and presumably vice versa as well, the Malaysian government only has a reciprocal bilateral agreement with seven countries, including obviously the UK and the Singapore, where a foreign judgment can be easily registered in Malaysia and I presume vice versa, subject of course to getting foreign advice. So it, it is very difficult if you have a foreign judgment or a Malaysian judgment you want to enforce overseas because you're likely going to have to restart court proceedings all over again. On the other hand, an arbitral award, and I'm sure you like this, Kalai, given how pro-arbitration you are. Malaysia is a contracting party to the New York Convention with 
I believe it's another 171 states. Am I right, Kalai? Yes, 172, yeah. including Malaysia. And that just makes it a lot easier for Malaysian arbitral award to be recognized and enforced overseas against foreign parties. You just go to that country, you apply to register the award and enforce it. Uh, of course, with the risk as you so eloquently elaborated on earlier, of setting aside proceedings being filed or, you know, applications being taken to oppose the arbitral award. But at least you don't have to go back into the merits again. Yes, that is right. So, Nimalan, what is the key takeaway? So, my real key takeaway, I think here, and hopefully the listeners will agree with me as well, is that parties should spend more time than I think they do now in determining the dispute resolution clause. They need to decide, do they want to go to the courtrooms and give exclusive jurisdiction to the courts? And if so, is it a Malaysian court or a foreign court? Or do they want to go to arbitration? And if they do decide to go to arbitration, it's prudent for them to consider what would be the model arbitration clause. And it's very easy because I think every arbitral institute out there has a model arbitration clause for their institution. Parties really need to just copy and paste their clause into their agreement, just make minor decisions on the governing law and the seat of the arbitration. Instead of trying to come up with their own bespoke, complicated clauses, which we have seen in the past, and which is really difficult for lawyers to try and enforce. Yeah, it may run the risk of those clauses being a pathological clause, and it may not be practical or enforceable. At the end, that's a risk. But ultimately, I think the conclusion is there's no one shoe that fits all. What is the best dispute resolution process or clause would very much depend on the nature of your dispute, the circumstances of your case, and the desired outcome. I'm afraid I'm going to say the obvious, that it'll be prudent for parties to seek legal advice before incorporating the dispute resolution clause so you can tailor it to suit your specific needs. Right. Thanks, Kalai, for that and for this enlightening conversation. Thank you, Nimala. Thank you for tuning in to Screencast. The views and explanations expressed here are for purposes of information only and may not apply to all circumstances or may no longer be accurate due to subsequent developments. You are encouraged to consult a qualified lawyer for any specific legal queries or issues faced.